Alright, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Romans Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This afternoon we want to look at the Christian and the law. In Romans chapter 5 and 6, Paul had begun to establish the principle of our unification with Christ in his death and resurrection and with when that truth is reckoned, as we found there the word reckoned in chapter 6 and verse 11, uh, we count it as a reality in our lives. We are free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin. And then as we move into chapter 7, Paul continues on this theme of our freedom. Only now our freedom is from the law. The end of chapter 5, there was the potential sanctification. In chapter 6, we saw a positional sanctification, as well as last week we looked at the practical sanctification. Now, it has been said, there is nothing certain but death and taxes. Uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said that. And I think he spoke a truth. <laughs> I've never experienced death. But I do know a few things about taxes. I worked for H&R Block for five years. And uh, I was out in western Kansas. And so I had farmers and ranchers. And I learned how to do the whole gamut of taxes for them. And uh, some of those farmers, they'd bring all their receipts in, unseparated, and expect me to do that. So we'd charge them a little extra for all the book work. One fellow brought his in in a... Uh, a sugar canister. And so all the receipts still had sugar on them. <laughs> so that was a sticky situation there. But uh, and I'm glad I don't do that anymore with all the complications of our tax uh, code now. I do do my own taxes, but uh, I'm thankful also I don't have to do my children's taxes anymore either. I was doing that for a number of years. But I am convinced that the only way to be free from taxes is to die. And your family might get the bill, but you'll be beyond the reach of the IRS anyway. But Paul is trying to help us understand about our new relationship to the law and to sin. And throughout chapter 7, the law of God is a constant theme. The law... The word law appears over 20 times in this one chapter. And in most of those instances, Paul is referring to the moral law of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, and is the question of the believer's relationship to those commandments that Paul is striving to answer in this section. Now, while Paul establishes the, that the believer is no longer bound to the law, he is no way painting the law of God as being useless to a Christian. And Paul is adamant that the law of God is not a means of justification 
or even sanctification. At the same time, the law is still a part of God's inspired, infallible, and important word of God. And so Paul's addressing the question of the Christian and the law. And there are three truths this afternoon that I uh, want to, us to look at. Number one is our relationship to the law is ended. We see this in verses 1 through 4. He says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead and she is loosed from the law of her husband, so then if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, notice as... We've seen Paul is very often stating his point, and then he spends several verses supporting, expanding that point, and such is the case as we come to the opening verse here. He says, Know ye not, brethren? He's asking a question, a kind of a rhetorical question. How that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth? In the previous chapter, Paul explained the truth that when Christ died, we died with him. It's upon that truth that Paul builds the principle of our death to the law in order to show that our original relationship to the law has changed. So first of all, notice the picture that's employed. The picture employed. Beginning in verse 2, Paul uses the institution of marriage to clarify our relationship to the law. He says if a woman has a husband... She is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. Paul goes on to explain that only in the case of death is the woman free to marry someone else. Now in verse 3, Paul says, If her husband be dead, she is free from the law. And her relationship to her husband in the marriage is a binding law upon her life that prohibits her from having another spouse. Now, I'm not sure what uh, the polygamists do with these verses, other than to say they probably take them out of their Bible, or they ignore them, or they explain them away. But as Paul stated in verse 1, every man born into this world is born in, with a life that is bound to the law of God. Chapter 1 spoke about that, how God reveals His law to all men, and they are bound to it. It's as strong as the bond of matrimony. Now, I want to, did you notice here that Paul doesn't talk about an exception clause? This is the concept that many times is misinterpreted from the Gospels, and we went through that in our study of Matthew. But it's misinterpreted to give an excuse. That's all it is, an excuse for divorce, even, sad to say, for some preachers who should be disqualified from preaching when they get divorced. 
And we still even have people that say, well, it's okay, you know, because there's an exception. Well, Paul doesn't say anything about an exception here. And we won't uh, go into the details of that part uh, this afternoon, but I just thought it would be interesting that Paul doesn't say anything about that. Paul is saying the only way this bond can be broken is by death. The only way it can be broken is by death. Not because she cooked you a bad meal, Not because something else went wrong in the marriage. Not because she ran off with another man. Only by death. That's what Paul says. That leads us to the truth that Paul is trying to teach us through this picture of marriage. Notice, secondly, the principle established. When we come to verse 4, the illustration seems to be reversed. Yet Paul's point is still clear. A death has legally ended our relationship to the law. And Paul says, Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. In verses 2 and 3, the husband dies and therefore frees the wife. In verse 4, the law does not die, but we, the spouse, die and are at the same time strangely able to be wed to the resurrected Christ. Paul was referring to something that the Romans would have been very would have very clearly understood by Roman law, a husband could put to death a wife if she had been unfaithful in a marital relationship. But in verse 4, Paul says that we die to the law by the body of Christ. Now the law demanded our death, and Christ, the lover of our soul, and our prospective bridegroom, died for us, satisfying the demands of the law and then rose again so that we could be wed to him in a new life. Paul's not confused when he turns this illustration around. He's pointing us to the work of the Lord Jesus and he shows us how that in him and because of him we are no longer bound to the law. Now, let me give you this illustration. It's kind of a ridiculous illustration, but I think it makes the point. Back in the South, during the Civil War days, and actually before the Civil War took place, there was a plantation owner, a very fine man, handsome man, who married a beautiful woman, and they lived happily in a lovely home. But then he became sick and died suddenly. And it was a great heartbreak to this woman, for she loved him dearly, and she she did a strange and morbid thing. She had his body embalmed, placed in a sitting position in a chair, in an airtight glass case, and situated in the great hallway of her lovely southern home. And the minute you would walk into the door, you would be met with husband number one. There he would sit. Well, her friends realized that uh, what this would do, and so they urged her to go away, to travel for a while. And so she went north, and then she traveled abroad for almost two years. And during that time, she met another man. She fell in love with him. She married him. On their honeymoon, they came back to her plantation home, and the new bridegroom did as most new bridegrooms are supposed to do. Uh, she 
And he picked her up and carried her over the threshold. And when he put her down, there he was, staring at them right in the face in that glass case. Well, he said to his bride, what is that? Well, she had forgotten about him. She told him that's, that was her first husband. Well, they decided, both of them, very wisely, it was time to bury him. And that was the proper thing to do. She was married to a new man. The old man was dead. Now, again, that's a ridiculous story, but I don't even know if it actually happened. But many believers have never buried the law. They've got it sitting in a glass case, and they're trying to live by the law in the strength of the old nature, and that is ridiculous. As Paul continues talking about our terminated relationship with the law, we also see the purpose explained. The last phrase of verse 4 is very critical to understanding this section. Paul states that we have died to the law and are wed now instead to Christ for the purpose that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Under the law, we are guilty, separated, and doomed. Our lives cannot glorify God even when we are endeavoring to keep the law. No fruit can ever come from a life bound to the law. Legalism produces frustration, not fruit. And the reason for our relationship to the law has, that it has ended is so that we can produce spiritual fruit. It tells us right here that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Our marriage to the law only brings about failure. We can't keep the law. But our marriage to Christ should bring forth fruit. When it comes to the Christian and the law, Paul teaches us that our relationship to the law has ended. The second thing we notice here is our release from the law is essential. Our release from the law is essential. Verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, and being dead wherein we were, to- we were held, that we should serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul moves into this verse 5 here, and we find that there's a kind of fruit from our union with the law, and it's precisely the reason the union had to be severed. In verse 5 and 6, Paul contrasts the results of our life under the law and the results of our life united with Christ. In looking at these two verses, we see why it is so important our relationship to the law has ended and that we're released and united with Christ. Three changes that are brought about. Number one, the operation of our life. He says here, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members. Now there's a word motions there. Uh, That's probably one of those uh, archaic uses of the word motions there that we don't use in that sense anymore. We would use the word emotion or passion or affection. It's not really necessarily an archaic word, but it has an archaic meaning. 
And so the reason it is translated motions in our King James Bible is due to the fact that an earlier English motion was sometimes used in the sense of emotion. So when you understand, so we're not going to get rid of it, we're going to define it and we're going to go on, right? Okay. When you understand that Paul was talking about the passions and the emotions of sins, you can grasp why these things needed to be changed. Paul says these passions did work in our bodies. The word work there is translated from a Greek word, energeo, which gives us our English word, energy. Under the law, our bodies were energized by the passions of sin. So that's the operation of our life that needed to be changed. Secondly, the outcome of our life. Paul goes on in verse 5 to remind us that these passions of sins were operating in our body. They produce a fruit unto death. Again, we're reminded of the earlier words that in chapter 3, it says the wages of death or wages of sin is death. Under the law, our bodies were given to sinful passions and the outcome of that life was going to be evidently uh, evident, inevitably death. And our relationship to the law has to end in order for this outcome to change. So you have the operation of our life, the outcome of our life, and then thirdly, the obedience of our life. Verse 6, Paul makes the contrast between our life under the law and our life once unified in Christ, or to Christ. He says, but now we are delivered from the law that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Much of what Paul is going to say in the next chapter is related to this statement here at the close of verse 6. And uh, there he will deal with the walking in the Spirit's enablement. And his point now is to show us that we are dead to the law so that we, uh, that we can be lawless. Not so we can be lawless, but so we can truly be obedient. Now while we could not obey the letter of the law, no one can keep every letter of the law. We can obey the Spirit who penned the law, who wrote it. Paul says that for the Christian, our relationship to the law has ended and our release from the law is essential. And so then, thirdly, he goes on to qualify all this by pointing out that our respect for the law is eternal. And we see this in verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. I was alive without the law once, and when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then 
that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me, by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Someone has said that this section beginning in verse 7, Paul again is most careful to vindicate the integrity of the law. Paul desperately wants his readers to know that while the believer is dead to the law, they are not disrespectful of the law. You see, the problem lies not with the law, but with the sinner. And that's a point that Paul is clearly making as he finishes this section of chapter 7. As a believer, our marriage to Christ has brought a new appreciation, a new respect for the law. And Paul explains that this is an an eternal respect. We respect the law because it shows us three things. Number one, it shows us the reality of sin. Again, he anticipates an objection here, and he kind of asks this rhetorical question in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, this is answered with an emphatic God forbid, or let it not be so. And he goes on to explain that the law is not sin. It only revealed the presence of sin. And he said, I had not known sin, but by the law. God goes, or Paul goes on to explain that he would not have known lust unless he had read where the law commanded, thou shalt not covet. In verse 8 and 9, Paul explains that once the commandment was revealed to him, sin actually became a real and active force in his life. Verse 9, Paul explains that before he had known the law, he perceived himself as alive. But when the law was revealed to him, he knew that he had died. And so we see the reality of the sin. Secondly, the result of sin. Paul says in verse 10 that commandments that were ordained to life or pointed to what was required for life, he found to be unto death. Paul says that through God's perfect law, that if kept perfectly can bring life. He actually realized his own death. He says in verse 11 that his sin took occasion by the commandment. That word occasion means a starting point or an opportunity. In other words, sin had used God's command as a starting point, and from there it deceived Paul and slew him. Just as in the garden, the Garden of Eden, it was God's command regarding the tree that Satan used. That was a starting point, that was an opportunity to deceive Eve into sinning against God. And the same experience was true in Paul's life, and is, is true in our life as well. The result of sin is always death, and we learn that from the law. And then thirdly, the repulsiveness of sin. Verse 12, Paul restates his respect for the law by confessing that it is holy, just, and good. And then in verse 13, we have another rhetorical question. Paul asks, was then that which is good made death unto me? And he goes on to show that sin is what caused death. And the law is good, and it showed him that sin is exceedingly sinful. Paul respected the law because the law became the mirror through which he saw sin as a reality in his life. 
The commandment is what caused Paul to despise sin for its repulsiveness. Now in the next section of chapter 7, we will enter into one of the most controversial passages uh, in this epistle, probably in the entire Bible, but much of controversy, however, is unnecessary, inconsequential uh, to the overall theme of chapter of the chapter. That is, we, that we are dead to the law, can neither justify us or sanctify us. Legalism is dangerous and deadly. Brings us into bondage from which Christ died to set us free. And a verse that closely relates to this section is found in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, where Paul very sternly asks, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? You see, in striving to obey the law in the flesh, that leads to a pitiful confession that constitutes the remainder of this chapter. And for that reason, it's very important, it's very necessary that we know that ye also are dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. It's, that, it's not that we say, well, the law, we're no longer under the law, let's just take the law and rip it out of our Bibles and throw it away. No, we have a respect for the law. Because what does the law do? It shows us our sin. And we can't keep it. But Christ died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. And so he fulfilled the law. And that our lives are now dead to the law by the body of Christ. Why? So we can be miserable the rest of our lives? No that we should live and bring forth fruit unto God. I trust that uh, as we think about the law and the Christian, we realize it's still important for us. We have a respect for it, but we look at it and we see the reality of our sin, the result of our sin, and how repulsive our sin is. And that we need to obey the Lord Jesus Christ And we need to be in his word and know what he has for us and bring forth fruit unto God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage of scripture, sometimes misunderstood and and misread. But Lord, we pray that you've given to us the wisdom and the opportunity to, to look into your word this afternoon and realize what it is saying for us. We realize that our relationship to the law has ended. We're not, no longer under it uh, any longer. And yet we still have a respect for it. And, we'll, and should and always will. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray that we'll grow and change and, and become more Christ-like in our lives as we are diligent to study it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.